The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Mart Wolbert. Uh, Mart, I, uh, I spent the last, I don't know, half an hour or so reviewing some of your prior uh, conversations. I'm excited for this. Uh, introduce yourself. Who are you? Uh, How did you get involved, interested in investing and markets, and why Uranium? Well, that's a great question. Thank you for having me on, by the way. And thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you're all doing very well out there. Well, to start with, my interest for the market and investing has been with me from a very young age. And I basically got really, really interested in uranium from from 2020 onward, because when the whole market melted down and started recovering, I started looking into, okay, what do I think is going to do well in the coming years from this bottom? And something that really drew me to commodities and energy is basically that you want to invest in something real, something tangible, something that, that serves a real purpose. And I ran into uranium and I never really gave, well, I was a proponent of nuclear power. I never really gave it much thought besides that. But when I really started looking into it, looking into how nuclear power powers the world and the way that uranium um the way that uranium plays a part in fueling those power plants powering the world. Um, I started looking in deeper into the fees and what I found was a enormous supply demand mismatch, which has only gotten more mismatched over the past, say roughly three years since I first started looking into the thesis. And right now, I can safely say that it is my main focus and also by far the most exciting investment piece that I've seen in the market. Uh, on my own platform, the Cotrain Codex, I try to find Cotrain investment opportunities. And while there are several in the current market environment, I really can't find anything that comes even remotely close to the, the real opportunity that uranium is presenting right now. You know, it's that. I would argue that it's uranium is not really contrary, and I think it makes a lot of sense. Anybody that spends you know twenty seconds hearing the reasoning <laughs> yeah. there, I would understand. But I think what's contrarian is the idea of investing in uranium and uranium plays, because the reality is, you know, the stocks haven't really kind of done all too much. There's a lot of volatility. Doesn't exactly look like uh, on the mining side, sort of uh, the ideal buy and hold investment, but. All this stuff is around cycles. Um, talk us through why is it, despite it seemingly being obvious uh, from a longer term perspective, that it's not getting the kind of flows that you might expect? 
well, for uranium specifically right now, um, I would say that I did expect it to to get going early. But last year with the broad equities market uh, doing what it has done, it has put a lid on it somewhat. But the uranium story has been developing under the surface regardless of that. And the thing with uranium is that when news comes in with all these, because people often say, oh, we got so many great catalysts and all that. Why are we not at 80, 90, 100 dollars per pound uranium yet? Well, news um, is slow to really have an impact on this market until it all starts to matter. So what we've seen over the past two years is that all this news from reactor life extensions to new builds to underfeeding to overfeeding to geopolitical uncertainty that will cause inventory restocking, all these things, they will start to matter and they will start to matter at an inflection point. Um, what I've marked down as in the middle or later this year, uh, what the impact that financial players can have on this is, of course, well recorded. But I think that we've seen nothing yet on that part. We can get into that later in this discussion as well. But um, from what I've seen, with everything that's happening in the tour market right now, I must say that I'm very, very excited for Uranium. I think we will finally see a lot of price discovery, especially via tour market activity. But I think that it's best that we um, look at the thing that is powering uranium or the thing that is powering nuclear power plants and look at the nuclear renaissance first and go from there. All right, so, so let, let's let's work with that nuclear renaissance theme. But but first, you had mentioned life extensions and new builds. You know, you're in you're immersed in this, right? But a lot of the audience, and including myself, don't know some of these nuances of what these terms mean. So so explain what life extensions is, what new builds is. Why why does the evolution there matter? Okay, let's start with new builds. A lot of people are. Um, over the past few years, a lot of people have now caught on, but over the past decade, a lot of uh, investors, but also just general public, have assumed that nuclear power was dying amidst a, re- amidst a surge in solar and wind and all kinds of support, governmental support for those energy sources. But we are actually now sitting at the highest nuclear power output worldwide that we have seen. Uh, it dipped a bit after Fukushima for clear reasons. After Japan took a lot of their nuclear capacity offline. Germany took a lot of their nuclear capacity offline. It is still doing that, sadly. But right now, what we've seen is starting with new builds because we're now at that highest capacity what we've seen in history. Um, with new builds, I mean new nuclear power plants that are coming onto any given electricity grid all around the world to power set electricity grids. So, for example, the biggest one is China. They are adding a lot of nuclear power plants. And right now they are planning to add 130 gigawatts by 2035. They're targeting 10 new reactors. Yeah, I've spoken to CGN in Q4 of last year, and they mentioned how confident they were about how they could reach these targets. And right now they have been reaching a lot of these targets. So I wouldn't bet against them reaching that 130 gigawatts. And right now with other new builds as well, you're seeing a few new builds in the United Arab Emirates. You're seeing Saudi Arabia also targeting 10 new reactors by 2030. You're seeing India targeting 21 nuclear reactors by 2031. And these new builds, they will need to be fueled by uranium. There is really no other substitutes, but that's what I mean by new builds. So new reactor hitting the grid. What I mean by life extensions is something that we've seen more in the West. So, for example, one of the biggest examples uh, from the last few years were the power plants in Illinois, Byron and Dresden in the U.S. 
And those plants were scheduled for shutdown, but they got life extension. What that means is that they can continue to operate, continue to consume uranium, continue to power the population surrounding those power plants. So a life extension is basically when you say to a power plant operator, right, you can keep your power plant running for X amount of time. And that is a big, big difference from a decade ago. What we see right now is that, especially also in the U.S., which operates the biggest nuclear power fleet in the world, is that these utilities, they are now getting the certainty via either government, via government subsidies, via um yeah, different sort of bills, new legislation to keep these power plants running for longer. And these power plants can run for upwards of 80 years, even slightly above that for some designs. So, and they can run them safely, they can run them efficiently. And that is really something that um, that we've seen a lot of. And, and I'm very glad to see that because once, as long as these power plants um, can be kept running efficiently and safely. We should keep them running. They are very efficient. And if we want to keep um, consuming more energy and you also want to decarbonize grids, you want to keep these power plants running. So life extensions are just as important as new builds in this regard. You mentioned China. Is it fair to say that you know, China is sort of the real driver of future demand because there's not as much, you know, uh, they don't, they're not so worried about sort of headline risk around nuclear accidents or things like that. Um, how, how important is China to the story overall? So China is very important in this regard because, like I said, they're targeting 10 new reactors a year, 130 gigawatts by 2045. And if you want to do the math on that, you can use roughly 450,000 pounds of uranium per gigawatt added, account for two or three years of front-loading of the reactor core for each new reactor, and then you realize that in the uranium space, a decade is tomorrow, and you will realize that China is now already preparing for that bigger reactor fleet. So, yeah, China is a very important part of the growth story because they are the biggest grower of nuclear power in the world. India is... Are also trying to do their part, but really nothing comes close to what China is attempting to build out. And they've been cranking these out on time and on budget, unlike some newer Western reactors. There are reasons for that, of course. But um, China has been delivering on a nuclear power growth story so far, and there is good reason for that as well. If you look at um, the way that they've been powering their nation, for now they're trying to add wind and solar as well, but wind and solar are really not as effective on a lot of, on large parts of Chinese soil as nuclear power would be. So there's good reason that they go for nuclear power. They will, of course, be reliant on coal and oil and gas plants as well. But it's clear that um, they have now embraced nuclear power as a key part of their future energy supply. From a geopolitical perspective, um, what's maybe happening that you're seeing behind the scenes, right? So Kazakhstan's a major uranium uh, producer. I have to assume that, you know, Chinese authorities are trying to, you know, cozy up more and more just because they want more of that directly from them. Um, talk about how all this impacts sort of geopolitical relationships globally. That's a good question. Um, for Kazakhstan and China specifically, they've actually, um, China has actually been trying to get as much supply as they can. And I think the clearest example of this is the deal that they made with Kazanoprom. They are on the border between uh, Kazakhstan and China. They are planning to build, or they are already busy um, building a warehouse and filling that with uranium with a target of filling it with 50 million pounds of uranium. 
by 2026, so that 50 million pounds will be supplied via Kassanomprom, and 50 million pounds for some context, that is the entire or roughly the entire production capacity of the largest uranium miner in the world, Kassanomprom, to be stored in a warehouse for energy security because they are, China is building all those nuclear power plants. There are, of course, have of course been some problems from a geopolitical standpoint. Uh, of course, Kazakhs, um, the Kazakh relation with Russia, but also other potential problems that could emerge. We've already seen problems with um, from delivering pounds to uh, utilities. Chemical has a JV in, with Inkai there, with the Inkai mine. And the delivery from those pounds last year went uh, rough, to say the least. And there are problems with getting those pounds to utilities. I've written about this as well in one of my latest newsletters. And they have other options if they don't want to ship through Russia because of these geopolitical issues that you highlighted. Um, they can use the Trans-Caspian route, which is a route that goes through the Caspian Sea lands in Azerbaijan and then goes through Azerbaijan through, um, right next to the Armenian border, which is important for geopolitical risk um, going through Georgia and then into the Black Sea and onto the Mediterranean. And this, but this route, while it has been in use since 2018, it really doesn't have the volume nor the really the safety, given that geopolitical environment that you would like for the transportation of Class Seven material. So there are options to ship that through China to do location swaps between China and the U.S., for example. But this geopolitical risk is really putting another. Um, I should have called it another tail risk for this thesis. And I think that a lot of people should take note of, um, a lot of utilities should take note of saying, okay, we got a lot of exposure to Kazakh orange and uranium. Maybe we should diversify. And diversifying from Kazakhstan means that you need to look at other mines, for example, in Namibia or Niger or the US or Canada. And there's really not a lot of options right now. There will be more options as the price goes up. But that's diversification because of geopolitical risk is something we we are already seeing and we will likely see more of in the coming years. Yeah, and I got to imagine that makes it challenging to to figure out the right type of stock to invest in, right? Because they've got a then you're really talking about more than just sort of the idea that this or that company is a a miner or producer. It's it's that they have to you have to really factor in the geographic locations of where they're pulling the uranium from. Um, what are some of the things that you do to try to analyze different companies in the space? I got to imagine it's more than just here's a price to earnings ratio. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mostly because a lot of these miners don't even have earnings. So using a price to earnings ratio will not get you very far in this regard. But um, what you're betting on with investing in uranium equities, a lot of these are exploration companies, development companies, is that as the price goes up, investors come in. You see a lot of speculation, you see these miners. Um, with the with the pounds that they have, or if they're still exploring, um, that's how you get like a return on your investment as the bull markets get going. But what I look for in these miners, so yeah, not a price to earnings ratio unless you're going for the bigger producers or those bringing back brownfield assets such as Paladin and Boss once they bring those back. But what I look for is basically it comes down to three things. It's of course more than that, but the three basic things I look for is management, geology, and strategy. With management, you really want to look for a company that has 
done this before. Like if you if you are going to invest in a uranium developer or exploration company, it's all nice and well that the management has done exploration development for a gold mine in Peru or a silver mine in Mexico, but it really doesn't help you if you want to develop a uranium asset in the Athabasca Basin. So you want management experience. So you want management that has the right type of experience. What you also want is a management team that has the intellectual capital needed for this. It basically means the same thing as what I just mentioned, but that is something that as uranium price goes up, we will not see a lot of new mines being built because the intellectual capital simply isn't there. It has died out a lot since um, the start of the bear market after Fukushima. And the second thing I look for is geology. You want to look for a potential uranium asset that is in the right jurisdiction and has the right geology to provide uh, exploration upside or development upside, such as, for example, in the Athabasca Basin, you have a lot higher grades for um, uranium exploration companies because of the geology there. But there are, of course, other risks compared to when you were exploring in Namibia, for example. And the last thing I look forward to or look for is um, is strategy. I want to see a clear path either from exploration to development or from early stage exploration to mapping out what kind of resource they could have or from development to production. You want the management team to have a clear plan of action because if they're just going to keep on drilling, if they're an exploration company or a new DFS or PFS for development company takes forever, it, it really doesn't help as they are on the clock given it's a cyclical industry. You want those three things in place. And risk tolerance is very important. These uranium companies are often very small. You can invest in bigger companies as Chemical, Cassatoprom, NextGen, Paladin. But they're also much smaller, sub-$100 million companies. And that comes with its own risk reward that you really need to take into account. Um, this is what I do as well. I'm currently working on a 32-stock sample portfolio where I basically take four risk categories, so low risk, medium risk, medium, high risk, and high risk, and then pick eight companies for each risk category. I will probably upload that on Friday on the Codex. But these are, you need to really think for yourself, okay, what is my risk tolerance? What kind of, what part of my portfolio do I want to invest in this? And really look at these miners and these developers and these explorers as, okay, do they have the right team in place? Do they have the right geology for further upside? And do they have an actual strategy and not just mining shareholder value? Okay, so I have to imagine hedging is a big part of strategy as well. So I've had uh, Amir Adnani uh, before, and as I recall, he makes it a point to not hedge at all when it comes to the uranium space. How do you think about you know, companies, their hedging techniques, and whether an investor should be looking for companies that are trying to actively hedge. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. That's a good question. There are different 
types of ways you can hedge as a uranium For example, if Amir doesn't want to hedge, that's his decision. But I think that it's prudent to hedge given that prices can be very volatile. Yes, I think that price will be much higher within the coming one to two to three years. But you still want to secure some pounds under contract to have those as a ba- as like a base of operation. For example, we've seen several producers um, sign sign long term contracts in the fifty dollar range. That was met with a lot of skepticism, especially from people on Twitter who mentioned that okay, why are they selling out pounds now? We're going much higher. Why why aren't they waiting until we get to eighty, ninety dollars, whatever? Um, but that's really not how this tour market works. So these players, that, these producers that are that have signed contracts in the fifty dollar range to hedge, as you mentioned, they, from what I've been hearing, they won't be back until we reach seventy dollar range and higher. So where they're hedging now, they will leave production on the table for higher prices. Personally, I think that hedging is prudent. I think that. Uh, for some players more than others, it is also necessary to do, but it really depends on what company you are um, you're invested in and you're looking at. And do you find that you know companies that are actively hedging are are pretty good at that? And I say that because you know hedging is a form of of active trading. You can argue, right? And that's a hard thing for actual traders in public markets. I got to imagine it's very hard for private traders as well. Yeah, I think that. Um, I think that the biggest example of what you would call hedging, what we've seen is from Chemico. I spoke to Grant Isaac as well, who's the CFO of Chemico, and he mentioned that um, there's still plenty of upside less left on the table, even if you hedge um, your the the production that you have right now. But like I said, it it, it differs from company to company, so it's hard to really um, make a general assumption regarding that. Now, there's, there's obviously been sort of a degree of not just nuclear renaissance, but you can argue technological renaissance when it comes to nuclear. I mean, I've, I've had prior guests talk about the smaller modular reactors. Um, and I know you mentioned that in the direct message to me. Talk about um, how important sort of a, a smaller size to uh, nuclear uh, matters for you know, future demand and, and what are the kind of interesting dynamics there? Well, let's start with looking at the scoreboard for traditional nuclear and then work our way to small modular reactors. Uh, what we're seeing right now, let's start with the real growth story. We already talked about China being the real growth story for uranium. Um, from this nuclear renaissance scoreboard, it is, it, or you might describe it as that only few would understand how big this renaissance actually is. And let's start with Japan and the, the, this country which has experienced Fukushima, um, is currently in the process of restarting the majority of their plants and extending their lives beyond 60 years. Um, they also plan to have 22% of their power grid be powered by nuclear power by 2030. And that means they plan to run um, most of their existing fleets and even expand it where possible. And Japanese fuel buyers are already in the market, and I expect that to continue as well. Um, we already talked about China. Going a little bit to the northeast or southeast, depending on if your starting point is Shanghai or Beijing. And where South Korea South Korea is also a big nuclear power player on the world stage. They have a 24.5 gigawatt fleet. They are expanding that with another 4 gigawatts under construction. And recently, um, President Yoon Sikyol 
turn that around. And last month we noted that, um, or he turned it around, turned the previous uh, nuclear policy around from the previous government who wanted to phase more of it out. And the plan used to be to have that grid a little over 20% consistent of nuclear power. Right now the target is almost 35% by 2046. I also already mentioned India was planning to add 30 or 21 reactors by 2031, which is comes down to roughly 16 gigawatts of capacity because these reactors are smaller than your traditional uh, one gigawatt reactor. There are a few other examples. I mentioned the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, uh, Pakistan. In Africa, you have Egypt, South Africa. You have Europe, um, with specifically France and the UK also re-embracing nuclear power. France... Um, a few years ago, their plan was to cut their nuclear power share of generation to from 75% to 50% by 2025. That plan is absolutely off the table right now. And President Macron uh, last year even announced that there were plans to build up to 14 new nuclear reactors by 2050, which, of course, is a very ambitious target, but it shows where their energy priority lays. I also saw that the UK is trying to really focus on nuclear power with than trying to triple their capacity by 2050. So where does uh, where do small multi-reactors come in? It's, of course, a, a technology that's talked about a lot because uh, especially the politicians seem to really like the idea of having a smaller reactor that is more flexible, that can be scaled up and down more easily, that can be more easily implemented into the grid. But it's, it's an... Well, not, I wouldn't say early stage technology because the plans to have more SMRs running are already being targeted for 2028, 2029, but it's really a story for going into the 2030s. And you can also see that from a recent IEA study that showed that out of the 237 operating coal plant sites in the country, there's potential for 157 for those um for a coal to nuclear transition using these small multi-reactors. It remains to be seen um, where or how this is implemented and how this world works and how a piece of legislation um, come to the table regarding these, this broad implementation of small multi-reactors. But it's something that I'm personally very excited for. There are some companies that already are working in this space, such as NewScale, and this all makes for a scoreboard that is very lopsided to a positive nuclear energy. Of course, not all positive as a scoreboard has two sides. For example, in Germany, they are still trying to remove their final three reactors. They've been extended uh, for the coming few months. It remains to be seen whether they stay in operation. But this entire energy wonder from them by shutting down the nuclear power and relying on solar wind has been a somewhat of a disaster and irony of ironies recently um the brown coal mine Gartsweiler, um was expanded and they had to really they had to tear down a wind farm for that so this energy wonder went into the full 180 and um belgium is also has also just shut down a big nuclear reactor they have been in conversations to keep the other reactors running for longer but that was also one side of the scoreboard that did not well that not that didn't do very well. So that lands us at what would it be like 35 to 2 if you use Super Bowl terms, which is an absolutely ridiculous score in favor of this nuclear renaissance. And I think the small modular reactors will only add further to that. It's a couple of people ask questions in the uh, thread. I'll just read them out loud, get your uh, get your response to them. 
Uh, love your take. Could you talk about Paladin versus Boss? Uh, Paladin seems to have the marketing prowess, but Boss rarely gets mentioned on Utwit. By the way, I didn't know Utwit was a thing, uh, but hopefully it's uh, not as much of a contrarian indicator as Fintwit. Uh, <laughs> they have different strategies in terms of laying in contracts. Boss has none. What's the better strategy? Well, that, again, depends on your risk tolerance. Boss is a smaller player in this regard compared to Paladin. But what you have to watch out for for both in this case is cost overruns and time delays. I will say that Boss is very richly valued for what they bring back online with Honeymoon. And I will say that Paladin is, it's of course a bigger company and it will likely also see more institutional capital flows once the market really gets going. I will say that Paladin with Langer Heinrich is the more compelling of the two right now. Although I will say that there are risks with these restarts from um, brownfield projects. And it really depends on how much risk you want to take and how you want to structure your portfolio. Because investing, especially in natural resources, is profoundly personal. No one here on uh, with Fission 3.0 recent news being positive. Why does the share price not reflect it? I'm not familiar with this company, but I'm assuming it's more on the microcap side. Um, but maybe if you know a little bit of on that, that'd be, uh, that'd be great. Yeah, Fission Free Point always a developer, or not a developer. They're an exploration company in the Athabasca Basin. They have a market cap of, I think, just um, south of $100 million right now. They have ran up absolutely massively, I think like two, three hundred percent, if not more, in just a few weeks' time because they made a high grade discovery on their Patterson Lake North uh, project. And they have a bunch of other projects as well, but this project got a lot of attention because they made a very, very, very high-grade discovery. Um, I think the reason that the market didn't really like it is because um, both uranium equities haven't done very well for the past few years, as uh, past few years, past few days as the news came out. But I also think that the market was perhaps um, thinking that the new assay results would indicate that the discovery was bigger than it actually is. There are, of course, more assay results that are yet to come out. And... With Vision 3.0, because of uh, the absolutely massive run that it had, I think that from November until the peak, it was 550%, something like that. It was very frothy. So these discoveries, they always have to to give something back. They can't just keep running in a straight line. So I think the market necessarily didn't like it, but I think that the expectations might have been different and that after this big of run that some investors may say like, okay, this enough with the assays. I'm just going to take some profits. Okay, so let's talk about market cap here. Um, Cameco is obviously the, the, the real big player, uh, but there are a lot of, you know, just as we alluded to, smaller micro cap type companies, which of course have their own risks. Um, for yourself, where do you tend to focus your own um, investment capital? Are you trying to simply go with the larger firms or do you take some, some speculative bets on much smaller ones? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So... How do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Well, the way I try to structure this is in a pyramid-like approach is what I often describe to 
um, to the people I speak with. And also before before I jump into the pyramid like approach, I think it's important to note that the total cumulative market cap of all publicly traded uranium companies in the world sits at a measly, I think it's $37.5 billion right now, which is absolutely tiny. I think that's the same market cap as Ferrari. And this this industry, of course, a lot of companies are private, a lot of production capacity is private. But this industry that powers such a large part of uh, the world's energy grid is sitting at measly market cap. And I think that and at the, in the last bull market, I think the market cap, it peaked out at around $150 billion. Or dollars and with 500 companies, we're now sitting, as I mentioned, about 37.5 billion dollars and roughly 80, 90 companies. But the number is growing right now. But regarding what companies to pick from that 37.5 billion dollar pool of market cap, um, I would say that going with a pyramid-like approach is will serve you best in this volatile environment. What I mean by that is that you start with. Um, cornerstone companies in your portfolio, the big ones, the ones that already have assets, the ones that um, have a path to the production or development and a clear strategy, as I mentioned earlier. So, for example, you can go with a chemical, you can go with a Cassandra Prom, you can go with a Nexian, a Denison, and Energy Fuels, big companies that have assets, that have proven management teams. And then you can start building from there. Then you can start layering in uh, perhaps higher cost developers, more torqued producers, um, smaller market cap developers, more risky exploration companies. As you build upwards from there, you build up more risks. So smaller market cap, um, which of course has more torque in the uranium bull market if the company can deliver. But that way you have a strong base, but you also have enough torque near the top of the pyramid to catch some more of that upside without risking your portfolio because an explorer doesn't hit or a developer gets hit by a sanction. Those things can happen. This is natural resource investing and there are several risks to take into account. So I think that pyramid approach for people that want to take maybe a relatively conservative approach is um, something that can be considered. But again, it really depends on your own um you know, risk tolerance. As I mentioned, I plan to upload a 32 stock sample portfolio that will allow people to look at, okay, how much risk do I want to take? Maybe two from high risk and maybe the rest from low risk because my risk tolerance is relatively lower and I, my portfolio goals are also adjusted. So I think that's something to take into account. But again, investing is profoundly personal. So please also um note for yourself like what are your goals what is your risk tolerance uh what do you want to achieve how much of your portfolio do you want to have invested in uranium those are all things that you need to think about before you really get into this sector but yeah the lower the lowest thank you for your question by the way fc and um i think that the lowest production cost on earth was specifically for denison and the reason that they modeled this low production cost was because they are now trying to implement ISR mining instead of just conventional mining for their Phoenix deposit because it's so high grade. They have been testing this. The testing has been successful, which is um, to some people it has been surprising and it has exceeded uh, company expectations while well doing this testing period. They have one final test left to go, which will be concluded, um, I think, in Q2 or Q3 this year. So we will have to see how that goes. But the low-cost mining... Uh, for Afabasca properties, I think you're referring to specifically for Phoenix because they are modeling it as an ISR mine. It remains to be seen if that is 
uh, can be implemented successfully. It has gone well so far, as I, as I mentioned. But um, this would be the first time ISR has ever been implemented in the Afabasca base. And so that brings with it its own risk and its own potential rewards as well. So I hope that answers your question. Let's talk about um, moats uh, in the industry. Um, is there a degree of intellectual property protection, certain patents that companies somehow use to make themselves you know, uh, likelier to get more margin than other companies? Talk, talk through those dynamics for a bit here. That's a, that's a very good question. I've, I don't really have a very good example. Right? You have, uh, like, ISR mining is not patented as used by a lot of miners throughout the world. Um, you have specific um, specific parts of the uranium uh, from the fuel cycle, so the miners, but also for the fuel cycle with, for example, laser enrichment from uh, Silex, which has been a very popular pick among uranium investors over the past few months. And it has also done very well. But on the front end with uranium miners, I would say that I don't really have a lot of examples from the top of my head regarding patents for specific parts of their business. One of the one of the examples I can give is, for example, the saber mining technique, which has been um, used and is trying to be developed by Orano, I believe, and Denison Mines. So that is one of the things that they are developing. So I think that would fit. Um, your question. Other than that, I can't really uh, think of anything on the top of my head. So my apologies for that. I'm going to have to owe you that answer later. Yeah, no, it was just I, mean, I, I just kind of something came to mind. Okay, let's go back to some of these other questions I'm seeing in the thread here. Um, and you know, as as is the usual disclosure, none of this is investment advice. But you know, some people are are curious about uh, some of these things here. Uh, you, the URNM ETF versus the URNJ, URNJ, which is the junior. Uh, uranium miners, and this kind of goes back to the uh, market cap question. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts on using either of those for a pyramid approach? Now, I'm going to do a little bit of a spin on this. Um, it, it, when you look at gold miners versus you know that are junior versus not junior, uh, the junior miners people think have far more convexity potential because they're smaller. So if gold runs, the, mi- the the junior miles will run faster. I've done tests on this; it's just not true. There's a lot of variations of reasons for why um but how do you think about sort of the the junior uh, uranium miners versus the larger players and uh, are the junior miners more sensitive to uranium prices well they certainly appear to be but again it depends on like personal catalyst per miner so for example um fission 3.0 made a great discovery they ran up big on that if denison mines would have made the same discovery they would still have probably made a pretty decent run, but it would because of the higher market cap, the run would have been um, lower than it would have been for Fission 3.0. Denison would have gone up 300%. But regarding the question for uh, URNM versus URNNJ, I do believe that over the course of this bull market, we will see the smaller cap um, companies outperform because of the lower market cap. But I will say that they are also more risky and that they also will underperform on the downside so a chemical will hold up far better if the market decides to go down another leg um, and the risk off environment comes back in full force in the coming months which is definitely a, a strong possibility in my opinion so those uh, smaller miners are a lot less um a lot less strong uh, to hold up in that regard compared with urnm compared to urnnj urnm the um strongest differences that you are and m holds companies like chemical cassandra prom and the spot fiscal uranium trust which holds 
I believe it's 15, 14, and 13 percent. I might be a little bit off on that for in URM, so it takes up like the bulk of that ETF. And a new URNNJ is goes with the relatively smaller companies, so like a Paladin, like a Uranium Energy Corp, like Denison Mines, Energy Fuels, Next Gen, but also adds like way smaller companies, for example, like in Alaska and Anfield and Baseload, companies like that. So I would say that if you want more torque, I do believe that URNNJ will um, will help with that. But keep in mind that liquidity is also um, it's also something to take into account in this regard because URNJ is far smaller in that regard compared to URNM. Talk about consolidation um, for a bit here in in the space. Um, yeah, do, do you expect there will be more of a pickup? Typically, do you see uranium producers buy out other producers? You know, how does that uh, play into uranium versus other industries and sectors? Well, there has been um, some M&A. You mean M&A activity, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yep. Okay, got it, got it, okay. Uh, we've seen M&A activity pick up. We have seen a few big deals happening in the U.S. Recently, we've seen Consolidate Uranium uh, take over Virginia Energy. We've seen Encore Energy take over um, an asset from Energy Fuels, Alta Mesa in Texas. We've seen other. We've seen Encore do other deals as well. They have been busy. We've seen UAC take over UEX, which is not confusing at all. And we've also seen um, UEC take over other assets. We've seen some um, from other parts of the world as well. We've seen some other consolidation of assets, such as Deep Yellow going in for Vimy Resources. So we have seen some M&A activity happen over the past couple of months. But I definitely expect this to pick up. And in the last bull market, you saw that um, that deals were done in higher and higher quantity as the cycle moved up, but also in higher and higher uh, for higher and higher prices. We have seen billion-dollar deals happen in the last cycle. And I must say that I expect something similar to happen this cycle, as well as first bigger producers, such as, for example, if Global Atomic makes it into production or Paladin, probably restarts uh, Langer Heinrich in the coming years. Um, they will undoubtedly look for smaller projects to add to their pipeline because if you go into production, you're single as a producer, you're just consuming your own balance sheet and you want to have a pipeline of production to show to the market, to show to investors. Um, so I expect that to happen for the bigger players. I expect exploration companies maybe to go between themselves and see, okay, maybe a bit, slightly bigger exploration company takes over an asset from someone else. But yeah, I do expect... Uh, the M&A activity that we've already seen to go up uh, multitudes over the course of this bull market. Great question. I think that's brought, while they're not the main story, I think they will play, they have the potential, I should say, to play a profound role. Uh, I recently interviewed John Kimpaglia on the Codex and he shared some great information as well. I can pick a few nuggets from that. He mentioned that um, there's a lot of interested capital on big interested capital on the sidelines um that is interested in getting into spot because sprot is a low risk because they what they try to mirror the price of uranium over the course of this bull cycle is a low risk highly liquid in the context of this cycle um vehicle for these bigger financial players to come in so when we see liquidity properly return to the sector and risk on goes back on whatever that is, but I think that will be perhaps later this year. If that happens, they can then bring in a lot of the sideline capital and 
purchase more pounds. As a result of that, John mentioned to me that he sees a lot of interest right now. He sees a lot of big institutional capital right now doing research on uh, various parts of the uranium market. So I think that sport could have a big impact, but also other financial players as well. We've seen recently seen Yellowcake go out and uh, raise $50 million for the purchase of uranium. That was met with so much enthusiasm and capital that they upskilled that to $75 million. And I think it was, no, last week, last week I spoke to Andre Liebenberg, the CEO of Yellowcake, and he noted that as well, just the same that uh, John Kimpaglia noted that, that there is just a lot of, there's a big increase in um, the interest for the uranium sector. Of course, it can get a lot bigger. They are doing due diligence right now. But overall, I think that's brought, could play a profound role in this bull market. This, of course, not the main story. It will not be the main driver. That will be the term market. But I think that's brought, um, once liquidity properly returns, um, will continue to stack pounds. Oh, by the way, uh, before I forget as well to mention it, the NU fund um, will also raise a lot of capital in the coming year. I think that next year they're poised to, or they're trying to, will try to raise $400 million and they have an agreement with Casanoprom to purchase $500 million worth of uranium in the coming years between now and I believe 2027. So that could take a lot of demand or there could be a source of secondary demand as well. And there is also talk of another potential um, fund reaching the market in the coming months that could have an impact as well. And I've noted that there will be more financial players being interested in the stacking of physical pounds of uranium, either via, or via vehicle or via other measures. Uh, everybody here again, please make sure you follow Mart Wolbert here on Twitter. Check out his uh, research as well. Uh, and again, feel free to click that bottom left microquest button or just click on the bottom right to tweet questions. I'll read some more questions from that uh, thread there. Uh, this one's from Streethawk. Uh, how much of the future sector growth is priced into the massive run from April of 2020? And I think it's uh, always an interesting question because markets are supposed to be efficient. Uh, I think you and I would both agree that's probably not true. Uh, but how do you think about uh, the pulling forward of growth? Well, I agree that that's not really pricing a lot. Like we have seen the price of uranium go from, I believe the low was $18, to the high 30s in that run. And right now we're in the 50s. We've not really seen equities. Well, we've seen equities reflect that a bit. But what you need to realize is that that uranium, that price of uranium jump that we have seen has been reflected in the uranium equities. That is true, but we are nowhere near where the price of uranium should be. We're in the low 50s right now. The term market contracts that are being signed from what I've been hearing are entering the $60 area. And what is important to note is that with the supply-demand gap that keeps on growing right now, which is the basis of this entire thesis, is... Um, just the fact that the uranium price, uranium equilibrium price to get new greenfield development or new greenfield projects online used to be around uh, $55, $60, $65 area. It's not there anymore. It's not even near there anymore. It's entering the $80 area right now for new for a lot of new greenfield projects. So the price of uranium will need to go a lot higher. And as is the beauty of these cyclical commodity, um, cyclical commodity markets is that 
as they go down on the downside, they usually go down further. The Prius through equilibrium raffle, they go down further than a lot of people think. But when they go back up, they usually also pierce the equilibrium level to the upside. I'm not saying that we go to $200 uranium, but I am saying that we are nowhere near where the price needs to be if we have wool, if we want to have any hope of filling um, the growing supply demand gap. I think Grant Isaac recently mentioned that there's around 1.4 billion with a B uh, pounds of uncovered demand to fill between now and 2035. And if you look forward to 2035, let's do that. Let's take a step forward to 2035 as a decade is tomorrow in this space when it comes to the procurement of fuel for nuclear power plants. Okay, we're now in the year 2035. Nuclear power has fully completed its renaissance and the Netherlands has finally won a World Cup. I hope both are true, but let's stick to nuclear power for uh, for now because like, map, if you map out this trajectory, what you land at is around a demand side of 230 million pounds, not including SMRs, which could have an absolutely profound impact as well. And when you look at end of 2030, uh, two, sorry, 2030, in the 2030s, that's 230 million pounds. That is relatively conservative. When you look at the supply side, let's throw that conservative conservatism out of the window and let's bring back all existing production to full capacity, including lower tier assets, greenfield projects that are still in early development, and a bit of production capacity on top of that to account for potential expansions of that uh, supply outlook that lands us at 160, if you push it at 165 million pounds. So this demand, this supply demand gaps keep going into the end of this decade, into the 2030s, unless the price of uranium goes up substantially. And that is exactly what I expect to happen because with this nuclear renaissance, these all these power plants, they will need to be powered some way. And that some way is uranium because there there is no substitute. Thank you for the question. I think it's a very good question. And what I would say, like, besides what I've already mentioned from the Trans-Caspian route, them trying to avoid shipping through the port of St. Petersburg, what they used to do a lot, and the other options that they might have. Um, what I could add is that you're completely correct. Like, the country has been relatively volatile which with civil unrest, especially what we've seen um like several several months back, regarding that Russia had to intervene uh, with the civil with the civil unrest, and that has like started um, like a really fought process for utilities. Okay, are we are we going to diversify? Are we going to do this? But I think that the biggest story from um, Kazakhstan and specifically Kazanprom for their production has less to do with civil unrest, although that will certainly could certainly have more of an impact as, as could geopolitical tensions. I think that the biggest thing that needs to be taken into account is their recent, um, what should I call it, their, their recent production guidance. That's what I'm looking for. Their recent production guidance, because they have revised down guidance this year, not on the back of this civil unrest, um, but on the back of just well-field issues and uh, personnel issues, as well as uh, supply chain issues, because they have noted a lack in sulfuric acid, which is a very important component of their ISR mining, uh, as well as other supply chain issues, such as for the tubing for ISR mining. And that has caused them to revise down their short to midterm, so this year 
but also next year production guidance. They have not revised down the 2024 production guidance, but given this current trajectory of what they've been saying, I think that 2024 guidance can also be definitely be called into question. So that is four to five million pounds this year that has been revised down. So for all the people that are wondering, all the uranium bears that have been um, holding this as a bear case, saying that, okay, but Cassetoprom could just ramp up to uh, God knows how many pounds a year and really kill this bull. Um, that is that is really not possible. They are they have been operating twenty percent under their subsoil user agreements. They have they have upped that to ten percent below their subsoil user agreement. But given the, these recent issues that we've seen, um, I would be surprised if they can adequately go to their nameplate normal capacity, let alone go over that subsoil use or reach a subsoil use agreement, let alone go over that subsoil user agreement, given um, the problems that they have flagged right now. Those will be solved um, in the coming years. I have no doubt about that. They will keep producing. They will keep being the biggest producer in the world, but they have been seeing some problems. And if they are seeing problems, there is a big, big chance that uh, not even a big, big chance that it has been happening. Other producers in the world have been facing those problems as well. For example, Chemicals um, Return with MacArthur River has been facing some time delays as well. And these developers and other producers, they will be facing the same type of issues with cost overruns and time overruns. So as the price goes up, you will see more of this as well. Well, it remains to be seen. I think that um, we will need to continue to monitor this situation closely, as Cassette and Promise mentioned this as well. And right now, I I am not a geopolitical expert. I'm not going to pretend I am. And I will say that these could have an, an impact. For example, also the tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan, um, which, as I mentioned, like the, the Trans-Caspian route runs closely to the Armenian border with Azerbaijan. And that could cause trouble as well. So there are definitely a lot of um, a lot of things that could happen on the geopolitical front. Maybe more tensions. Maybe Russia doesn't really like that Kazakhstan promise cozying up more to China than they're cozying up to them. The support for the Ukrainian war from 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 Kazakhstan has been not really been existent. So I think Russia might have expected more support, so they might. Uh, they might not like that either. So I think that there are a lot of a lot of um, variables to take into account on a geopolitical stage. So yes, there could definitely be more disruptions, but I'm not modeling that into my supply demand models because it's it's speculative at this point. But anything that happens is just another just another notch in the back of uranium prices because they will put more production capacity in Cassetoprom at risk. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Thank you for participating. Please uh, show some support uh, to not just Mark, but also to me. Follow each of us here. Follow Piotr as well. And I will see, hopefully, many of you at around noon Eastern. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions.
Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.